This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Floyd Yeomans, card number 365. Floyd was a pitcher for the Montreal Expos. Floyd was a suggestion from a listener, right? Sean Silver at the Silver Fox on Twitter made this request back in December. So sorry for the little bit of a delay there, Sean, but you know that we're going to get to all of them over the next uh, 15 years. Floyd Yeomans was his suggestion. He didn't give any context for this one, but in looking into it, I think we have a pretty interesting story coming up with Floyd and always happy to talk about an expo. We've got a lot coming up here. Floyd as an Uber driver. We have Floyd and his history as part of the Tampa and Gulf Coast, Florida pitcher factory. So it looks like a good show. Yes. Floyd is maybe best known for being part of a big trade. He had a ton of talent and maybe didn't quite live up to the expectations of some of the other Tampa, Florida pitchers who who made it big, his childhood friend Dwight Gooden being one of them. But we also have a a very good Montreal Expos song and (laughs) a little bit of a a different story here than usual because Floyd just kind of went on into a normal life after baseball. Okay, fantastic. Well, let's go to the card. Again, this is card 365. Floyd is on the mound. He is in mid-delivery. This is that that classic white Expos jersey with the red and blue stripe running all the way vertically from from his ankle all the way to his armpit. It is a, it's such a cool look. I I do have a bone to pick with this card, though, David. There's something that stands out like a very sore thumb to me. What is the ready position of that second baseman behind him? The second baseman back there is standing around like he's waiting on a bus, not that he's not ready ready for action. I don't know what that guy is doing back there. Unless Floyd is throwing some warm up pitches, that guy is looking at first base, maybe. He's not looking at the play. He's going to get hit with a line drive. They've blurred him out. and I and That was to protect his identity. Yeah, because he should obviously be fired immediately. If this ball was going into play, uh, he would be killed or would commit an error or both. Compared to the Don Sutton stance, where we joked that Don looked like he was pitching in a rec softball league, Floyd is digging back and he is this is going to be a 95 mile an hour fastball or something this is a going to be a big pitch and i've noticed that on almost all of his cards 1988 tops or otherwise floyd looks intense on the mound like he's throwing as hard as he can every pitch so his glove hand you know his wrist is flexed he's getting momentum for his pitch you know, his right hand, you can see the ball, you can see his fingers, you can see the grip of what is undoubtedly a fastball coming straight down. I think it's, this is just awesome. That's just a great, great picture. So let's go to the back of the card. Floyd, 6'1", 190, right-handed pitcher, drafted by the Mets, second round in June of 1982, which we will talk about. Born May 11th, 1964, Tampa, Florida, where he was born and his home. 
card number 365. So the fives and zeros in this set are normally guys who are notable. So Floyd, maybe there were some expectations around him. He, at one point, was the ace of the Expo staff for a very short time. So there was clearly some expectations that Floyd was a good pitcher. So David, as we mentioned, he was drafted 1982, and the back of the card has some of his minor league stats from 1982 through 1984. Tell us a little bit about about Floyd growing up. Floyd grew up in the Belmont Heights neighborhood in Tampa. Tampa was a very good place to find baseball players around this time. We already talked about that in the Jody Reed episode that Wade Boggs was also from around that around Tampa. Fred McGriff, Gary Sheffield, Dwight Gooden, who was Floyd's childhood friend. Gary Sheffield, actually Dwight Gooden's nephew, was only a few years younger, but he honed his skills hitting off of some of these guys like Floyd and Dwight and a couple other lesser-known guys who, who are from the area. Ty Griffin is also in this set. He was on Team USA and was drafted by the Cubs. And then a couple other pitchers, Vance Lovelace, who's now a scout in the Dodgers organization, was also one of these big, powerful pitchers from the Tampa area, and a guy named Jimmy C. Gardner, also drafted by the Cubs. He said that the C stood for cool. <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit about Jimmy Gardner later. But Floyd wasn't drafted out of Tampa. He was drafted out of Fontana High School in California. He moved there as a sophomore. Some of the other alumni of Fontana High School, you have Sammy Hagar, the Red Rocker, mm. and Travis Barker from Blink-182, and Antti Razoff, Chicago ah. Fire legend Antti Razoff. Floyd was picked in the second round in 1982 by the Mets. The first round pick for the Mets that year, Floyd's childhood friend Dwight Gooden. So they their top two picks were two strong pitchers from Florida. They played together in Rookie League in Kingsport in 1982. 1982 season, the stats on the back of the card, just 10 games and 39 innings pitched and a 6.18 ERA. But he was just a kid at that point. Yes, but you do sense a theme here of he walked as many guys as innings pitched. And that was a, a constant theme for Floyd throughout his career. By 83, Dwight and Floyd took different routes. They both played in A level for the Mets, Floyd with Columbia. He was 12 and 3. Dwight, on the other hand, went to Lynchburg and went 19 and 4 with 300 strikeouts. <laughs> and yet, he wasn't the MVP of that team because Lenny Dykstra, as we discussed in his episode, was on that team and had 105 stolen bases. But by 1984, Dwight is in the majors, winning Rookie of the Year, leading Major League Baseball in strikeouts as a 19 year old. Floyd slowly moving up single A and double A through the Mets system. So Floyd with perhaps not as high a ceiling as Dwight Gooden, uh, maybe we're finding at the at the beginning of his career. He's striking out a lot of guys, walking a lot of guys, doesn't quite have the control. At one point, Floyd was asked about Dwight and he said, you know, we're, we're very close. The only difference between me and Dwight is his curveball. And once I get my curveball down, I'll be able to win like he has. You know, a little bit of control. They both have similar power pitching stats and are good strikeout pitchers. But Dwight was able to get his curveball under control better than Floyd. Mm. In 1984, Floyd is in Lynchburg and Jackson. But then at the end of the season, or in the offseason, 
he is traded. And that is the this way to the clubhouse fun fact at the bottom of this card that Floyd was traded by the Mets to the Expos with Mike Fitzgerald, Hubie Brooks, and Herm Winningham for Gary Carter, December 10th, 1984. This is maybe the most interesting fun fact that we've had so far. Maybe the only interesting fun fact that we've had so far. (laughs) This is a huge trade, a blockbuster trade. You named all those guys, and I feel like maybe the Expos get a bad rap here. But there's a little bit of backstory about Gary Carter. He was already a star, already maybe the best catcher in the National League by 1984, uh, and very popular in Montreal. At one point, Pierre Trudeau, the prime minister, said, I'm happy that I don't have to run for election against Gary Carter. <laughs> so uh, so the fans loved him. Everybody loved the kid, except maybe his teammates, because Gary was getting paid $2 million a year, twice what Andre Dawson was making. Gary was also maybe seen as happy to be in the spotlight. So the Expos were losing money and a little bit disappointing, and they were looking to cut some expenses. Because Gary had seniority as a 10-5 and player, he could veto a trade. Mm. And at one point, the Expos indicated that they wanted to get rid of him. Gary okayed the deal and knew that the Mets had a very good young core, as we've seen, and guys like Dwight Gooden and Keith Hernandez and the stars on that team, he knew that he could go to a winner instead of languishing for his 30s in Montreal. So at the time, it was reported that the Mets gave up two of their young regulars and two highly regarded prospects. So this was seen as a pretty good deal for the Expos. I think in hindsight, it looks much better for the Mets because in 1986, they won a World Series and Gary Carter was seen as the key addition to that puzzle. Hubie Brooks was a shortstop who ended up making a couple all-star games and being the first the first shortstop with 100 RBIs since Ernie Banks. So he had a pretty good season when he went to the Expos. Fitzgerald was a catcher. Winningham was kind of disappointing, but he ended up scoring the winning run for the Reds in the 1990 World Series. And in the New York Times, it was reported that Floyd was a high school teammate of Dwight Gooden. So <laughs> people already at that point were using that as a a selling point rather than using his actual stats, but he was constantly compared to his high school teammate. And we've already done it a few times here, so apologies to Floyd. Yeah, it's inevitable. It was part of the story. When you see like two pitchers coming up the same time from the same place, it's just inevitable for us to compare them and to have hopes that if one person turns out as a big success that the other one will too. The Expos got a good return for a player who they really couldn't afford. Gary Carter did end up going back to Montreal later in his career. He really only had two very good seasons in New York. It just so happened that one of them was for a World Series champ. So big trade, big fun fact. Going to 1985, Floyd is at Jacksonville, double A, 7-3, 336 ERA, and... 86 strikeouts in 85 innings and only 57 walks, David. So he's getting a little better. Yes. Fewer walks than innings pitched is a good sign for Floyd, but still a lot. Still kind of a lot there. He had a decent ERA and got called up to AAA, had a decent time at AAA, and made it to the majors by July of 1985. 1985, pitched in 14 games, starting 12 of them. 
He ends up with a 4-3 and record and a 2.45 ERA, so very good for his debut season. He's still only 21 years old. There's a lot of potential, a lot of excitement. And when I think of potential and excitement in the Montreal Expos, David, I now think about their theme song that, that we need to get to. Now that he is officially at the Expos, we have to talk about this song that you sent me. Les Expos sont là. The Expos are here. Les Expos sont là, performed by Marc Gelina. He was a TV performer in Quebec, and he wrote a bunch of songs. I've He's on Spotify. Highly recommend if you are in a Quebecois mood. 60s. This song is so very 60s French-Canadian. He also wrote a song about La Ronde, which is a theme park that was created for the Montreal 1967 Expo, after which the Expos are named. And that theme park is built on an island that was built and expanded using backfill from the expansion of the Montreal Metro. So you have this like very new... The city was being rebuilt and uh, re-energized right around this time. And then a few years later, the Expos come in and they have Marc Gelina, who is already known for his weird theme songs, writing this jaunty tune for the Expos. Yeah, there's a lot I like about this song, David. I like the kids singing in the background. I like the choice of instruments. I really like it. Uh, I think accordion would have improved it a little bit when I think of uh, French-Canadian uh, music, I think of there being accordion and pretty much everything. This also lends itself well to the organ in a baseball stadium. But the lyrics, Matt, you have tagged me as a, a French speaker. I am not. Yes, uh, fluent. I, no, I thought I, I thought you were fluent. <laughs> I have done enough Duolingo to order coffee. But I was able to translate a few of these. It seems like the story is a, a child getting their mom and dad to go to the baseball game. They're going to shout hip, hip, hooray and eat fries and chocolate, which I, I like both of those things. But at a baseball game, do you eat poutine at a baseball game? I would if I were in Canada. I think that would be the normal thing to do. I put this right up at the top of the list so far of baseball anthems that we've reviewed on the show. I think it's it's right up there in the top tier with Orioles Magic. Better than the Blue Jays song? Yes, better, better than the OK Blue Jays. Unlike the Blue Jays who didn't want to over-promise and under-deliver, in this one it is the singer is saying that they will make them champions. We will make mm. the Expos champions. Unfortunately, it took moving to Washington, D.C. to make them champions. But I like the sentiment that if you cheer hard enough and eat enough fries and chocolate, it's going to happen. Feels like le power to positive thinking. Well, listeners, if you'd like to hear the full track 
for this and as many of the old-timey baseball anthems as we can find, we will have a link to our Spotify playlist in the show notes, and you can find it there. If you have suggestions for other songs for us, uh, please hit us on Twitter, and we can add them to our playlist as we continue our series of all 792 cards in the 1988 top set. And, and all 792 baseball songs, if we could find. And any of them that have videos will be included on our YouTube playlist of oh. baseball songs. Yes, love it. Excellent. So, great song. Now let's go to 1986. It looks like he came into spring training, and you'd think that maybe he goes back to AAA since he had only done 14 games at Jacksonville. But instead, he becomes the fourth starter on this team. The manager said he liked what he saw in spring training. You know, Floyd could throw 95 miles per hour. The Expos weren't a deep team, and they gave Floyd a shot. He, unfortunately, through his first five games, he went 0-3 with a 7.25 ERA. So he didn't start fast, but through his next 16 starts, he went 10-3. and He had a very good July. He went 3-1. and with a couple of complete games and on the season he went 13 and 12. He threw five double digit strikeout games and was third in the National League with 202 strikeouts. Wow, that's a lot of strikeouts. However, I do notice that he was a league leader that year in walks of 118 walks. That explains how a guy who batters only hit 189 against went 13 and 12. I was impressed by this batting average against. It was the third best batting average against among starters with 30 or more starts in 1986. He was behind only Mike Scott and Nolan Ryan. So good company to be in. By comparison, Dwight Gooden, who's... At his peak, batters were hitting 215 against Dwight Gooden at that point. This 189 was actually 22nd all-time as a batting average against. He's up there with guys like Bob Gibson in his peak 1968 year, is one of the few guys ahead of Floyd. Unfortunately, when you're giving up 118 walks, (laughs) he had a couple of near-no-hitters, and he lost two of those near-no-hitters. In two of those, he... He walked seven guys. That's how you lose one nothing, two hitters. Mm. But mm. you know he's still only twenty two, and there is still a lot of a lot expected of him at, at this point. He was basically the ace of this Expos team, and a good power pitcher. He just had to get get under control. Well, going into nineteen eighty seven, as we look at the the last two lines on this card, there's twenty three games for the Expos, and then one game in Jacksonville. So this looks like a season of a lot of ups and downs. The season started with him as the opening day starter. After a breakout season, he's the ace of the team. Unfortunately, he gave up seven runs in three innings and took a loss. He started slow again, one in three in his first seven starts with a 6.75 ERA. Um, And the Expos made him sit out a couple times due to weight issues. Hmm. But... He started a really good run, winning six straight to get his record up to seven and three by mid-July. And again, in July, he was great in both 1986 and 87. He was actually the National League Pitcher of the Month in July. He went four and one with a 1.13 ERA, and that included a one-hitter, one-nothing win against Nolan Ryan. Well, maybe a couple reasons that July things turned around for him. I mean, one, being from Florida, maybe he just liked, he needed some hot weather. And it's not, 
you know, it's not hot enough in Montreal, you know, until until the summer for him to really get warmed up, let's say. But the second is there were some allegations that came out of there throughout the rest of the summer that there was something else affecting his performance and perhaps helping with his weight loss too. And that raises the eternal 1988 tops issue, cocaine question mark. And at this point, it was a question mark because there was an August story in the Montreal Gazette that quoted two women who said that they saw Floyd do cocaine and that he offered them cocaine and he told them he was using it to help with his weight. He denied these allegations and said he would go out and have some beer, but these ladies are lying. His friendship with Dwight Gooden was used as an excuse. He said, I'm close with Dwight Gooden, and what happened to him really discouraged me. He said that his reputation is at stake, and if there's an investigation, they aren't going to come up with anything. The Expo stood by him. He refused a drug test, but they went to some counselors who said there's no conclusive proof that Yeomans is a user of cocaine. Of course, these counselors are hired by the Montreal Expos, and if the Expos are defending their guy, maybe the counselors will as well. Unfortunately, there's a a negative element here in Buck Rogers, who was Montreal's manager, his support for Floyd. He deflected and said, well, the psychologist said he's not on cocaine, so clearly he's not on cocaine. And then he said... I'll take their word over that of two unsavory street girls. You know, it's just a, the boys club of Major League Baseball protecting their own. We've seen before some allegations and some things get swept under the rug. And this continues to this day with coaches getting in trouble for for sending lewd pictures and lewd text messages to re- female reporters. And we've seen this multiple times over the last couple years that there is a a culture of gender bias and sexism in Major League Baseball. And this kind of, you know, unsavory street girls, that language is, you know, just unacceptable. It's one thing to deny that this happened, but to just deflect and say that they're just liars is pretty terrible. Yeah, it has the feeling of one of those statements that will come back to bite you. Floyd, for his part, he goes one in four in August with a 9.24 ERA and ends the season nine and eight, he ends up going to rehab at the end of the season. At the end of the season, he went to rehab and it was rumored that the commissioner, Peter Uberoth, had threatened a year's suspension if Floyd didn't go. Floyd said that it was for alcohol abuse and that ended up being the case when he got out. It was an alcohol rehab facility. And to this day, Floyd claims that he was only ever addicted to alcohol. He completed his rehab stint And the GM, again in Floyd's corner, says he made great progress and sounded like a different man. And so by 1988, he's back with the team and he's going to be a starter again. And so he was a starter in 1988 for 14 games, did well in the month of June, at least at the beginning, but then on June 25th failed a drug test and was suspended indefinitely. So the denials and the deflecting, it's tough for them to work when you then fail a drug test later. (laughs) And then Floyd, to reduce his suspension, admitted to cocaine use and apologized during a tearful press conference. And, you know, it was clear that this is a guy who had some substance problems, maybe not to the extent of Dwight Gooden, but he clearly had some issues that weren't addressed. 
and the denials probably didn't help that. But, you know, it's a 32 years ago, it was a slightly different time for dealing with substance abuse. So after the season, he is traded to the Phillies for one-time all-star pitcher Kevin Gross. I found an interesting story about Kevin Gross that in that all-star season, he started really strong and then stubbed his toe and went like 4-12 and 12 after stubbing his toe. I can totally relate to that. I feel like my tennis career as a 14-year-old was cut short by a stub toe that led to an ingrown toenail and we can cover that later in my <laughs> my podcast this week in adolescent podiatry so the phillies trade away at all-star pitcher get floyd floyd comes into the phillies and is the opening day starter i think that might be a reflection more on the quality of the phillies pitching staff <laughs> rather than floyd's quality as a pitcher he ended up spending a lot of time on the disabled list during his time with the Phillies, including most of May, and pitched into late June. By that point, was 1-5 with a 5.70 ERA, and then had arthroscopic shoulder surgery on August 22nd. So he's 25, and basically his major league career is done. Oh, man. Yeah, that hard throwing took its toll on his shoulder, it looks like. 1990, very rough year for floyd in a three-month span both of his grandmothers died the mother of his son is murdered the day before their child's first birthday oh my gosh yeah that is right around the time that floyd is trying to get his career back and trying to come back from the shoulder surgery he goes to philly's camp and there's this article that really has a throwaway line about oh yeah and dealing with the murder of his child's mother he had to go to court to get custody of his child the day after he's trying to make the team and he failed to make the team. It's a real rough time for Floyd. And, um, you know, he tried a couple comebacks in later years, but never really caught on at the age of 39. He was back in Canada pitching in the Canadian baseball league, but that league folded. He said he felt good. And there'd be times where he would be getting close to a comeback with a team, getting ready to sign with a minor league, and then something would happen. You know, one time it was uh, a hamstring injury, another time it was appendicitis. So he just really had some bad luck with injuries uh, in his comeback attempt. So to wrap up his career, he had a record of 30-34 and 34 with a 3.74 ERA, but really some some flashes of greatness during that time, David. He... Certainly, you can see why all these teams look at him and see a potential star or at least a potential contributor to their staff each year, but just didn't work out. And particularly those Julys. He had two Julys in a row that he was just outstanding, and his career record in July was 8-2 and two with a 1.69 ERA. He had five complete games, three of them shutouts. His whip was under one. And batters hit 155 against him in July. In retirement, he tried to stay in baseball and did some coaching. He said one of the few people that he still stays in touch with is Wally Backman, who was his teammate in the minors and played for the Mets. And he worked with Wally when Wally was the coach of the Joliet Jackhammers. I think we've already talked about maybe Matt Noakes was one of their coaches at one point. Mm, But for some reason, they keep coming up. But this played a pivotal role in Floyd's life. While driving from Florida to Illinois in 2009, he stopped in Nashville 
to visit a friend who was coaching Little League, and he met a woman there in the stands who didn't really care about baseball all that much. Uh, she was a surgeon in Nashville, and they fell in love and got married. It's a lovely story for a minor league baseball game. So where is Floyd now? He has dealt with some health issues over the last few years, and he had heart disease. He had to change his diet, so he lost a lot of weight, seemingly healthy. In 2015, a reporter was at the baseball winter meetings in Nashville and got in an Uber and recognized the name of his driver. And Floyd was driving around all of these baseball people to baseball winter meetings, those same winter meetings where it in 1984, he was part of the biggest trade, and he was the Uber driver. He said he was a little bit sad that a lot of the people who were in charge now were people who he was friends with coming through the game, and he doesn't really have that much contact with the game. He talked a little bit about his his past troubles, and he said that he had been an alcoholic but was never addicted to cocaine, and he had battled depression while in, in the league. So David... You know, now in 2021, the gig economy has lots of different people in it. And by all accounts, it sounds like Floyd is making a go of it at this next phase in life. That's great. But as we close the book on him, what do you think now of how things turned out for him, for Dwight Gooden and the rest of the kids that had all that great promise coming out of Florida at that time? The ever-present theme of this podcast is that this was a different time in baseball. Floyd's peak salary was, I think, $175,000. He didn't make the money that Dwight Gooden made over his, the course of his career. He was out of Major League Baseball by 25. I think that there were a few ways that this could have gone. He could have gone the way of Doc. Doc Gooden hit the peak of success, and also right around that peak of success, he was uh, on so many drugs that he missed the Mets World Series parade. As recently as 2019, he was arrested for cocaine usage. I was watching an interview with him that was really quite sad to see what Dwight Gooden looks like right now. I think that he's, again, trying to get his life back in order, but it's not. it, it hasn't worked out great for him. One of those other guys that we talked about, Jimmy Cool, Jimmy C. Gardner, was drafted by the Cubs. He played a few years in minor league baseball and was falsely imprisoned for 27 years for a crime that he didn't commit. You know, a forensic expert lied about evidence. Jimmy sat in jail for 23 years after that expert admitted that he had lied. And, you know, now he's been exonerated and he talks at universities around the world about wrongful convictions. And there was this reunion in 2017 of Belmont Heights Little League players. And Floyd was there. And it's interesting to see Floyd's name as kind of a footnote in this story that's more about Jimmy C. And Floyd said, all I kept thinking is, we all had our shot. Jimmy C. had his taken away. And yeah, like Floyd drives for Uber, but he had his major league shot. And his story is disappointing and he missed some opportunities and he made some mistakes, but he had it and he didn't have it taken away from him. So his, his wife now talks about how Floyd will get a little bit sad when he sees big baseball stories and know that he's not part of it. But then he gets back to his life, which is 
raising his kids, driving Uber to make a little bit of extra money so he can go on a hunting trip. And I think Floyd's final thought on this would be, you spend so much time chasing, trying to get back to somewhere, but where you're at might be better than where you're trying to get. Yeah, it doesn't read as a tragedy to me either. You know, now he's a 57-year-old man in America who's trying to do the best he can. With a happy family and a happy marriage, and he gets to go sit in a hunting blind and hang out. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, could be worse. Well, I like it. Thank you, David. It is a bit of a different story this week and a good one to hear. So thank you for that. Thanks again to Sean for the suggestion. If you have suggestions, please send them to us. We're on Twitter at Tops1988. And if you're a big Poutine fan, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for the 1988 Tops podcast at facebook.com. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.